I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writer's House in our Wexler studio by Brian Teer, poet and author of five books, among them The Empty Form Goes All the Way to Heaven, and most recently Companion Grasses, which was a finalist for the Kingsley Tufts Award, who is a 2015 Pew Fellow in the Arts and recipient of many other fellowships and grants, who teaches at Temple University, lives in South Philly, and there makes books by hand for his Micropress Albion books. And by Kristen Prevole, poet, editor, essayist, performer, educator, and mind-body coach, whose books include Eye Afterlife and Shadow Evidence Intelligence, and the great and important Helen Adam Reader, which I use very often, Kristen, which she edited, and Scratch Sides Poetry Documentation and Image Text Projects, whose blog Trance Poetics she updates pretty regularly and includes expressions of her interest in past lives, time sculpting, and how confusion, as in the effect of difficult poetry, creates new neurons. And by Jed Rassela, a poet, scholar, and literary historian who started out in Hollywood in radio and television, whose books of poems include Tabula Rassula, or Tabula Rassula, whatever, it rhymes somehow, and Giacometti's Dog, whose important works of anthologizing include Burning City Poems of Metropolitan Modernity, co-edited with Tim Conley, and Imagining Language, co-edited with Steve McCaffrey back in the late 90s, and among whose many scholarly works are two that have wowed me in particular, Jed, the American Poetry Wax Museum, wow, there's a quirky book, and his quirky history of Dada, Destruction Was My Beatrice. Jed, thanks for coming all this way to, to be at the writer's house. Yeah, it's nice to be back again after a very long time. Has it been to a long time? I, th- I think it's been since the since turn ima- of the millennium. Since Imagining Language, we were celebrating think, it with Steve so. and some others. Yeah, I think that was about that time, well, 1998, maybe 99. Glad you're back. It's been too long. Um, Kristen, thanks for spending the day and overnight here. Thank this you is for the invitation. Your, not your first time at the writer's house. It is. It is. What do you think? Oh, that's such a loaded it's exciting. question. Yeah. And uh, I want to make sure that anybody listening to this conversation will go immediately to Kristen's Penn Sound author page where there are going to be some new recordings on it. Thank and you. Brian, always good to see you back at writer's house. Thank you. An easy commute here. Yep. Well, Today, the four of us are here to talk about a poem by Robin Blazer called A Bird in the House. It appears on, to be specific, page 359 of The Holy Forest, collected poems of Robin Blazer, and dates from the late 80s, possibly the very late 80s, or maybe the early 90s when it was written. Uh, Blazer's pen sound page includes two performances of this poem, one from a reading he gave in Buffalo in September of 1993, and a second from a reading at the Writers' Institute in Albany on October 26, 1994, a recording made by Chris Funkhauser from the audience and recently acquired by us, thanks to Chris. So we'll hear the second of these, in part because Blazer 
sets up the poem in a short intro, and also in part because his voice is so amazing in this second second performance. So here now is Robin Blazer performing A Bird in the House. 3.36, A Bird in the House. <clears throat> Everyone knows the superstition that if a bird comes in the house, it means there will be a death. And this poem is literal. A bird came in the house one year, and a bird came in the house the next year, and I'm still here. But the poem tells the story of the gift, quite literally, of those birds. A bird in the house. The truth flies, hungry at least, and otherous, of which, though it may be one, Kafka said troublingly, it has many faces. It's the faces one wants, tripping the light shadows of, its skin colors, of its wordy swiftness, angry and solvent, of its loud remarks. As of feeding flocks, one year, one among the smallest birds in the northwest flew into the house, a darting, panic thought at the walls and grasses, perched on the top right corner of the frame of Tom Field's painting, wherein adulterous Genji is found out. So Lady Murasaki reads from her blue scroll and permitted me to take it in my hand, soft, intricate mind, honoring and lift it out into the air. And the next year, again, one flew into the house almost certain like a visitor, gold-crowned, winged, floating about, odd discoveries, and alighted on the brim of the lasagna dish. My hand trembled as I took it up and moved slowly to lift it out of the window into the air, a kind of thinking, like everybody else, looking for a continuing contravention of limits and substance. Can anyone start with otherus? I love that word. I assume it's made up. Yes, I'm, I'm quite sure it is. And it, it does tilt the poem into such a kind of an adventurous domain right from the beginning there. Um, it, it makes you start to hanker after whatever is coming, I think. And why isn't that word now a universal? <laughs> yeah, you read it and think, wow, I'm going to use that word. Kristen, otherus is a synonym for... Um, What's it a synonym for? What other ver version of othering we use as a verb? Othered is a modifier. What's others? Well, I was really enjoying think about, thinking about it as well as other us. Hmm. You know, sort of playing on the um, expansiveness of the poem in terms of the contravention of limits and substance. And so taking that idea of other into an expanded field of what that meant um, but I certainly think it's modifying truth, mm -hmm. thinking about truth not as being a dictum or a point, but rather an expansion into a mysterious and unknown field that is very affecting to us. Brian, your thought on any of this? You know, I think um, the poem really reminds me a lot of the moth poem, um, which, which is stands very at the very beginning of Blazer's work and also has a kind of coincidence of flying of moths that are sort of trapped in interiors. And I think Blazer favors that kind of um, both chance, 
the sort of chance encounter um, and the way that these chance encounters that have sort of form a pattern might indicate some contravention of the limits of what we can understand. So, Jed, what is the speaker learning about truth by connecting this frame opening with this story, a literal story, he says in the intro, about these birds that yeah, flew in the house. but he's such a trickster. <laughs> well, so before I go to Jed, tell, tell me, Brian, tell me what, what's the trickster here? Well, I he knows I mean, what this, he's doing. this poem is so... Bo- I mean, I think... He, of course, he's right. Like, there's a very literal story here or several stories here. But it's also the whole point is that it's the impossibility of literality, of things to remain only literal. Mm-hmm. And so I love that he's like, oh, yeah, it's just this little story just telling you some stuff. Don't mind me. I'm Don't really Robert me. Frost. Yeah. I'm telling you about some birds. <laughs> and it's so funny and to the me. truth. Yeah, because it's like it ends with continuing contravention of limits and of substance. It's like, yeah, it's actually about how it's not literal. It how makes, does a poem, and it's not a metaphor. How does a poem this and it's good? not, it's easy, not a it's metaphor not either. Metaphor. Yeah. How does a poem mm-hmm. this good, and I'm just assuming we think it's good, but I do, end with, an italicized statement of the thesis. I mean, like, I how do you get away with that? How, Jed, how does he get away with that? I noticed that when he read it, he didn't do anything different with his voice either. Mm-hmm. So At hearing, hearing it, you wouldn't know that there's mm-hmm. But there's italic. all those syllables. You've got the I-N-G word, the T-I-O-N word. It's almost a, the end of a lecture mm-hmm. of which he was quite capable. And yet he's doing it as a poem. He pulled it off, didn't he? He did. The trickster part, you're referring to the introduction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he also, he, like, you know, some of the influential people who are influential for his generation, like, like he ha- he can have that, ah, shucks, gee, I'm just this guy from Idaho, kind of, he has that as part of his persona across the body of work. And so, sort of like old, you know, Uncle Ez. Um, so he can kind of do also that, like, oh, I'm not as wily or as sophisticated or as well-read as you think I am act too, which I find really, when I saw him read several times, I found incredibly charming in person. So I think charm is a key word in your, your last comment because, so he has that all shucks, but he gets away with it with the personal charm, reputational charm, uh, and also great a teacher kind of magical and gather charm. around him of people who, yeah, Jed? Yeah, I mean, I think also a kind of magical charm in the sense of, you know, charms and amulets and things like that. He's he's able to make things happen out of a space that the words seem to have only a tenuous relationship to, almost as if, you know, he's not speaking about something that the words have a direct correlation to. He's speaking in the space of something in which other kind of mysteries or phenomena transpire, and the words are like the birds' accompaniment to something that's happening in that space. The birds are like little aleatory poem, aleatory poem machines picking out spots in his domestic space that, he, that we should focus on as maybe symbolic. Kristen, I wanted to ask you about this. When I, when we got to the lasagna dish, the first time I heard him perform the poem, I thought the audience should laugh because that is funny. It's so great. They didn't laugh in the one in the in the version we heard. They were in Albany. Maybe it was just a snowy, crappy day in Albany, and they weren't going to laugh. But the reason it's funny for me, the first landing is on this great painting by Tom Field, which he collected and. Field is a name drop there and is very important in the San Francisco Renaissance scene as a 
a, a painter that Jack Spicer liked, and it was a little controversial. And he's got this paint, painting called Genji. Mm-hmm. It's an actual painting. And that in that moment, the bird seems to be saying, it's sort of like a Steve Anzian blackbird, you know, like, take a look here, take a look here, see this. And you've got this adulterous Genji. The second landing is on a lasagna dish, which actually makes you feel like a fool for overreading the first landing. <laughs> what do you think? Does that make like any sense? I like that. I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I like that a lot. Um, and the other, there's another reference in here, an embedded reference, which is a mythology of the, of these fetches, what Helen Adam called the fetch. Um, they were all blazer. Um, a bunch of other friends were out at Lou Ellingham's house in. I believe it was Bellinus or something like that. He had a kind of beach house where they would all go and hang out and do little residencies and talk magic and do tarot and this and that. And a bird flew into that house and it turned into a, a it manifested into a lot of poems. And I think it actually did sit on someone's dish, the site of someone's food. And Helen Adam made, of course, a huge deal out of it. Oh, you know. This is what this means. It's a fetch. It's coming to, you know, prophecy death or steal your soul or, you know, transmigrate from this reality into another. Um, so there's a myth. So I, when I read that poem, I think about that, that, that sense of mythology that these birds also bring in. Um, Brian and Jed, how, how, un, how unironic or serious is the spirituality of this poem? I'm going to save Kristen for that because I'm sure you have a view of it. <laughs> is, it is, is this a very seriously spiritual poem? I think that's a funny question. Yeah. Um, All right, I'll, I'll withdraw the question if you want to. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, for me, like, I loved Kristen's point that it's not, the bird's not really a metaphor. To me, I think of them as um, emblems of a larger system um, that he himself hopes is there but cannot articulate to me. That's kind of like, and I feel like that's what his work is constantly doing is trying to like limb out and describe like sort of and articulate um, an immaterial or invisible system, but it's one that isn't so ready-made for him. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't um, have the same kind of mythological figures the way that, let's say, Duncan or even um, Spicer um, drew on. Yeah. I think it, another thing that he does is to uh, integrate it with domesticity. I mean, that's something that he shares with Duncan. But I think he, he has a more relaxed way of doing it. When Duncan does that, you get a sense that a grand announcement is being made. <laughs> you know, we're now in the realm of the dom- domestic. And Blazer can just kind of casually go into that space and you get these birds flying in that carry premonitions of death and so forth. And he doesn't, you know, in prefacing that that talk, he makes a reference to that, but he doesn't really do that in the, the poem as such. And so what you get instead is a kind of a household incident that just sort of casually opens up like the opening up of a bird's wings into another dimension. Kristen, um, otherness is completely serious here. Does that have to do with the othering, if, if truth is coming, is delivered by birds, not humans. Is that a way of otherness? Are we, I mean, I'm saying something fairly obvious at this point in the conversation, but... Um, that isn't very, that's not so obvious, Al. It's not? No. The truth flies <laughs> and otherest. It's mm-hmm. hungry and otherest. 
Yeah, I mean, going back to your original question about the the spirituality issue, and and as you said, Brian Blazer was about cosmology. He didn't. He did use the word spirit, but not really. I don't think spiritual mm-hmm. as a grounding force. Um, and cosmology really is truth. I mean, the, scientifically, in terms of you know astrophysics. So, you know, cosmology is the truth. It's the idea of non-locality, that when you look at something directly, you're not seeing, you're just seeing the very, very small part of it. It's the gestalt. And so Blazer's way of writing in which he refuses to hold on to a metaphor or refuses to hold on to an object or refuses to do a, you know, an Eliot or a um, frost move of hold, you know holding on to something and then just plowing through the narrative of it. It makes me think when you mention the Frostian or Eliotic way of handling this thing, which this isn't, it makes me think uh, that contravention of limits applies not simply to our categories of truth, but of what a poem or what art does in that situation. And the limits are that Eliotic and Frostian, in particular Frostian, because this is a, you know, if one were teaching this as a kind of descendants from modernism, Kafka gets mentioned, so it's a, it's a particular, he's thinking about where he stands. Um, and Tom Field actually comes up, you know, as a kind of abstract expressionist in the, in the gang, um, as distinct from another way that modernism would have gone, which is that Frostian Eliotic thing. The limits there are how do I handle when something natural happens to me and teaches me about the wideness, of the other, otherness of the truth, and I don't respect limits of how aesthetically we should proceed? So maybe that phrase is metapoetic as well. And from the nods, I guess we're okay with that concept. He resists epiphany. He resists turning things into epiphanies. He's not going to do that for us. And this is like central casting epiphany ca- uh, story, right? <laughs> So it's a, he had a great opportunity here, and he, he didn't it's a, want it. it's a risk, right, Brian? He took a risk in making something very cliche. He knew, well, if this really happened, why don't I write a poem about it? Kind of dead on arrival yeah, idea. Yeah, and I also think one of the things like that I love about the poem is that we get this, again, for him in particular, like a super literal title. Like he's not, you know, he wrote this long series called Image Nations, which is like, what is that even? You know, you really have to puzzle through some of his work and its abstraction. This is like the flattest title ever for him. Um, And then, but we begin with figuration. You know, we begin with the truth flies, the faces one wants. Like there's already like a kind of refusal to land in the material right away. And it takes him a while to get into the kind of more literal detail. And then I really love how later in the poem, he also begins to really, through syntax and sejura and enjambment, really blur like what belongs to what. And we can kind of parse it narratively if we want to and assign roles. But I think the important thing is that the syntax really resists 
you know, us knowing exactly who does what and which of those words belongs to what. Which is why the swiftness of the bird is referred to as wordy swiftness, Mm -hmm. right? He's really darting in this poem. There's a moment where we could land on metaphor and be like, oh, the bird is like the mind and soft and intricate Mm -hmm. and it flies. But I think it it quickly undoes that and escapes. Right. I I think that that what happens is rather than anything like metaphor or a principle of substitution, you get a principle of simultaneity. And so at one moment, he can be talking about birds, at another moment, talking about mind, and they interpenetrate one another. Um, And I think one of the means through which he does that, not just in this poem, but throughout his work, is his use of space. Um, you know, the, he doesn't really have punctuation here other than M dashes and an occasional um, comma. But that's the only punctuation, but there's a lot of space. And it's that space that allows him to go off in another direction, kind of at the drop of a hat, because he doesn't have to conclude or indicate that there is a conclusion with any grammatical uh, part of, the, of, of a sentence. I, I want to add one thing about this as long as we're on this part, and that is about the reference to Kafka Did and wondering where that comes from. Because I, I wonder if he had read uh, the conversations with Kafka by Yanuch, I can't remember the guy's first name, a young acolyte. And it was in those conversations that Kafka referred to the fact that there's a Czech word, Kafka, which means like a jackdaw. And he thought of himself as, 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 some, as a bird as a with bird. a damaged wing. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is also the thing of Robin being like there's also that of like that Robin Blazer having the bird first name. Isn't it really cool that instead of naming this a Robin or some common bird, it's clearly a common bird, he refers to it somewhat prosaically as the smallest bird among the smallest birds in the Northwest. (laughs) It's so like – Nonspecific. Just – pedestrian ornithological, right? right. right. And he's, it's almost as if he doesn't want to say, I'm thinking of Robin or I'm thinking of mm-hmm. Kafka as a bird. Robins are pretty chubby, though. I mean, yeah. they're, pretty, yes. they're not they, that sorting. And they're, they're not, probably just, don't come they're into They're not the going to perch on a painting or on a lasagna dish. They no, might go is, for the lasagna dish. I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> <laughs> Only if lasagna was in it. One year, one among the smallest birds in the northwest flew into the house a darting panic thought at the walls and grasses perched on the top right corner of the frame of Tom Field's painting wherein adulterous Genji is found out. So Lady Murasaki reads from her blue scroll and permitted me to take it in my hand, soft, intricate mind, honoring and lift it out into the air. Let's go back to Brian's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and others' comment about the way the spaces create opaque grammatical fabulousness. Let's just do the first stanza. The truth flies, space, hungry at least, space, and otherus, of which, dash, though it may be one, dash, Kafka said troublingly, it has many faces. That's really hard. It's not super hard, but it's... No, it's, it's moving in the direction of a Jamesian uh, sense. It is, there. especially with the dash. Can we say uh, anything to? I mean, I think he. One of the things that I learned most from with Blazer is about syntax. I think, which I mean, he had a book called Syntax. I mean, I just think he's got a marvelous way of organizing syntax across lines and with the internal seizures and the line. Um, 
So that, yeah, you're right. It's a little windy and tricky, but it seems so clear to me. Um, And maybe sometimes that clarity is like an optical illusion, (laughs) like looking into something very deep and it seems so shallow, but then you realize, oh, that's actually incredibly, there's a lot of um, water between me and the bottom. He's great at it. Yeah. Right. It is fabulous in this poem. It is so not Frostian. Right. Frost, right. it would be truth, mm-hmm. and the bird would stand for truth, and that's all you need. But here, the truth flies, hunger at least, and others of which, though it may be one, we already don't know what it is. Well, and and I then think Kafka that... is speaking about how it has many faces. And the dashes here are not spaces. The dashes are really working for, with non-essential information. This is information that really doesn't need to be in this poem, and it's and it's separated by dashes. It's a non-restrictive Whereas spaces, clause. The spaces are it, that's the leap from from you know the, that from, that the that the mind needs to make in order to follow along in the um, intricacies of the poem as it's being created. And he's not going to fill in those spaces. You are. Yeah, he's using the spaces the way but Dickinson using, uses the dashes. Yeah. Yes. And he's yes. using the dashes in mm-hmm. this way you describe. You know, I'd like for us to go all the way around. Each of us have a crack at this. Um, what, there are people who will listen to this conversation and not know a lot of Blazer or not think of Blazer, Blazer as right in the middle of the their reading list or night table or syllabus. So can we say, I invite you to say something general about why Blazer is important, why this poem, although it's somewhat uncharacteristic of of other Blazer, why it's just a great invitation to Blazer, what does he do generally that you would recommend, um, why is he important? My pet theory is that um, of the Berkeley Renaissance, which consists of Duncan, Robert Duncan, Jack Spicer, and Robin Blazer, that I kind of read Duncan, who was 10 years older than the two younger poets, um, as the thesis, and Spicer as the antithesis. I, and I think of Blazer as the kind of di- the poor dialectical synthesis mm. of them really attempting <laughs> to yoke poor them Poor in the together. sense of it's hard, hard job? Yeah. Oh, it was a thankless task. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. He was ravaged by Duncan, um, and he was, you know, so stressed out about all of it that, you know, he moved to another country <laughs> to, get, to kind of... Did he go to Vancouver because he just wanted to quit that scene? I think in part... I mean, I think that was there part was of... There, I think I there think. was a, bl- a lot of reason that he left, but I think that was not an insignificant one. He really did think of them as great companions and really did attempt to synthesize them in his work. Both of what they represent in poetry, um, and I think he's underread for that reason. I think people um, are way more interested in the dramatic extremes, and um, especially the antithesis, because everyone loves a bad boy. Um, but I think I actually find him the most humane of the three poets, um, the most graceful, and definitely the most sweet. I think there's a kind of sweetness to his vision and a kind of ethos. Um, he really believed in the demos, in the democratic space of the poem. Um, he really had a politics um, that was less about royalty and being the 
um, grand unifier than being the grand kind of rhizomic, like trying to bring everything into relation without hierarchizing himself above those things. Brian, you make me really glad I asked this question. I, w- I was a little worried about the question when I asked it, but I'm really happy. So I can't wait to hear what you guys say in addition. Kristen, why, why should people read Blazer? Just echoing exactly that thought, I'll just riff and take the political thread from you, Brian. Um, Blazer is of the world. The word and, and the world are, are, are twin to him. And he is so deeply troubled and so unbelievably offended by um, abuses of, of, in the field of discourse at the level of politics. And he talks about that, and he is involved in the world, and he's not above it in any way. And the great quote that I, that I tweeted, thank you for retweeting my tweet, what we need to do is watch carefully the prostitution of the intellect to the messianic ideological end. I mean, that's Blazer speaking, you know, in the, in the 90s. <laughs> you know, I mean, look at what we have happening now. Mm-hmm. Imagine the importance of this poetics to what's happening to language mm. in this messianic ideological atrocity that we have happening. And Blazer becomes absolutely central to countering and understanding the space of revolution within language. Wow, Jed, how are you going to follow those two? <laughs> That's just what I was thinking. <laughs> well, I'll, a, a couple key words that I'll, I'll uh, roll out here and then talk around them. One is, is palpation. That is to the verb to palpate. Another is domesticity. And another has to do with uh, various aspects of cognition. Uh, I mean, what, what Blazer does, in a, I think, in an exemplary way is to constantly deal with very familiar, often domestic things. Uh, he's, he has a great stretch in the middle. I think it's in that book, Syntax of Found Poems, mm-hmm. where he's, you know, he just finds uh, graffiti on walls oh, yeah, and little bits in the newspapers. The truth is laughter. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and, mm. you know, he's, he has a great gift for just recognizing that whatever is ambient and to ha- at, at lying at hand has some kind of message or something that can be absorbed and, and picked up. And, and that leads to the different kinds of uh, cognition that I think you uh, see coming into play in his work and that makes reading his work such a delight. One is simply that he is always a philosophical poet, but without using philosophical terminology except when it's occasionally quoted from other people. There's a sense in which he's very close to being somebody who's like the conductor of a symphony orchestra who's also into bluegrass, you know, and almost impossible to imagine combination. But somehow he can pull that off in those spaces. And I think how those things connect is through this sense of to palpate. That is, you know, it's a technical term that's used in medicine for feeling the body. And I think he has a sense that everything in the Blakeian sense is, is a living and breathing part of the universe and his role as a poet is, is to palpate. And, to, and that's why in this poem, the, the palpation comes with the handling, literally the handling and releasing of the birds from this getting uh, you know, lost in this domestic space. And for anybody who's had the experience of having birds or bats or other creatures come into your domestic space – as alarming as it can be, they are always much more alarmed than we are. <laughs> uh, and he, somehow he seems to be very observant of that, I think. 
Well, I have a final thought um, to add to that on uh, Blazer generally, and it has to do with the strategy of this poem. Several times, maybe I, I think Kristen also mentioned Frost as an alternative, very much alternative mode. I I just wanted to be pedagogical for a second and imagine teaching this poem and a poem by Frost side by side, both about the truth. The poem I have in mind with Frost is a sonnet called For Once Then Something. Frost, the speaker, leans at a well, rural setting. He's at a well and he looks down into the water. And for the most part, the water gives him back a reflection of himself. And uh, there's a leaf that falls and so forth. But once, just for one moment, he gets to see the truth down at the bottom of the well. And it comes in the form of a piece of quartz. He's not even sure what it is. And so he has this idea of the truth. Um, Blazer is also, you could say, seeking truth, except that the differences are profound. And they have everything to do with, as I was saying before, what happens with the um, modernist subjectivity. In the case of Frost Speaker, you have this very subjective person who only sees himself. So it's kind of the the worst part of romantic subjectivity. Every once in a while, he gets to see truth. And that's what everything is all about. You've got to get to that point where you see truth because the romantic subjectivity part is bullshit. It's modern bullshit. And I don't really want to see myself, even though, of course, the speaker is very happy to be looking at himself and not truth because he's kind of scared of what the truth is. Blazer's not interested at all in that whole mode of exploration. First of all, is there a piece of quartz at the bottom? Every once in a while, you get to see, is there a single truth? Obviously not. And truth is the thing that's flying here. Truth is not the fixed piece of quartz at the bottom of a well that poets are supposed to discern. Truth is the thing that's sort of pointing out things to him in his own domestic space and reminding him of the equivalence of, you know, the the hot uh, abstract expressionists of the Berkeley days and the lasagna dish equally. And I think you're right to point out, too, that it's truth is more a direction or a set of movements you know, like that in and, and and a way of gesturing as opposed to like a single location. Like I think locating it in one single figure would undo the otherness yeah, and it's, of it. Yeah. And, and it's it not even... It would be a it would be a And fallacy. it's not in any sense singular, singular. And so you have the singularity of this one genius modernist poet finding finally the truth and being able to report to you that he can do a sonnet in which he ultimately finds it, although it's brief, but he gets to see it. And then another poet who's much more modest in the sense that you were describing earlier as a temperament, as a speaker's temperament. And the discovery leads to greater otherness rather than the affirmation of the genius of the poet. Similar setup, similar little anecdote, completely different results. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for several of us, or all of us if you're quick, to gather something that's poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Who want, You're all looking away thinking, what am I going to... Kristen, you have something in mind. I'd like to give a shout out to Rachel Zucker's podcast commonplace good and it's easy to find just it's easy to google zucker commonplace and the great thing about rachel zucker's podcast is that she just really lets the poets kind of ramble on a bit and so you really get into their into their world and then they have these wild conversations which is what podcasting is really good (laughs) at i think when it's at its best jed gather some paradise yes uh i 
recently had the great pleasure of uh, inviting someone to the University of Georgia who I know has performed, I think, several times here at the Kelly Writers House, and that's Yap Blanc. And since I'm uh, kind of I've become a kind of go-to advocate for Dada because of my Dada history, I'm a particular enthusiast of the whole lineage of sound poetry, and I think that he has the most informed and comprehensive uh, historical and also understanding of sound poetry, and also the most enlarged buccal cavity uh, in the service of this phenomenon. Cool. I didn't follow that last reference. Wow, you wanna, that's, that was that's, real. Well, that's the the what uh, that's a reference to the mouth. The mouth oh, I is, got the, it. I got in, in, yeah. is a, the buckle cavity, the, not B-U-C-K-L-E, B-U-C-C-A-L. He's six foot five and has the largest mouth I've ever seen and can produce any any kind of sound. Yes, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, sorry, I didn't, I didn't get it. <laughs> Much more poetically said. Brian, gather some paradise. I wanted to, since this is a blazer moment, I wanted to um, shout out to Miriam Nichols um, for editor, all of the editor, curator, curator, biographer of Blazer. And she just um, last year put out the Astonishment Tapes, a transcription of an interview done between Blazer and multiple people from the Vancouver poetry scene. Um, it's long been sort of like out there in like little bits and drabs and fragments, but this is the first time that the majority of the tapes have been put out together in one volume, and it came out from University of Alabama Press. Um, and it's a really great, long overdue um kind of view into a moment in uh, Blazer's life and also his poetics at that moment. And um, just like really, I learned a, I learned a tremendous amount from reading it about him and, and his poetics and his, his place in the Vancouver scene. Thank you. I'm going to follow up that with my own Gathering Paradise. Um, I had the delightful uh, experience recently in Montreal, actually, of uh, meeting Tony Power, who's the curator of the Contemporary Literature Collection, as it's called, at Simon Fraser University, SFU, where Blazer taught for so many years. Um, and Tony uh, has, he and his colleagues, have put together an extraordinary archive of Blazer materials. Highly, re- The entire finding aid is online. It's just a PDF, and you can look at all the letters that are there. Probably you'll have to travel to Vancouver, which is not the worst thing to do, and I intend to do it for a project I'm working on to read the letters. Again, these letters, of course, connect the San Francisco scene, but also the Vancouver scene in in ways that are really, really interesting. Um, recently, Tony and Deanna Fong and some others who are out there have put together uh, recordings of Blazer readings, and there are, I'm looking at a printout, there are eight pages maybe of 15 links each. So it's a lot of, and these are links to lectures he's giving variously at SFU. Uh, Here's one, just a fine and performing arts lecture on Petrarch and humanist philosophy, lecture after lecture, all available, I believe for streaming, maybe not for download. Um, but I highly, highly recommend that everybody get over to SFU Digitize Collections and enjoy more and more Blazeriana. And um, a shout out too to Miriam Nichols, who works with us at Penn Sound, to uh, on this very day, actually, when we're recording, is going to be sending us another stash of great uh, Blazer recordings. 
Well, that's all the uh, otherness we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writers House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writers House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Brian Tier, Kristen Prevole, and Jed Rasula, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us again next month for another episode of Poem Talk. <laughs>